Welcome to the Weekly Squeak, your weekly geeky squeak with me, an increasingly tired Christian chiller. Uh, tired through lack of sleep, tired through, well, uh, anyway, anyway. <laughs> I don't think I need to go into details of how everyone feels right now. It's one of these strange times when um, you can just say a couple of words and everyone kind of knows what you mean. That's actually a somewhat um, oh unifying experience, albeit a not so positive one. Anyway. Um, this week I have a few links for you as always, and then I have an interview with Gaurav Deshpanda of Tigergraph, talking about their, uh, distributed graph database. But first, let's begin with the links, and as hard as I try to keep them a COVID-19 free zone, it's getting harder and harder <laughs> to find much else to talk about, or how it all connects somehow so I'm just going to go for it. Uh, there's a few things that interested me, somewhat relating, some not. Let's just see how we go. All right, let us begin. First, a post from uh, Tom Rafferty, who I've been following on Twitter for some time, uh, on uh, podcasting tips. These, uh, I found, uh, a lot of them were sort of <laughs> subscribing and buying services, which uh, may or may not be um, a good thing to do, but it exposed me to a couple of uh, new tools I'd not heard of, which was interesting, some of which I will look into at some point. Um, I'm starting to work on a few new shows, more of that later, with a few co-hosts and uh, who aren't in the same place as me. So trying to figure out how to get good quality audio recordings from people is an extra challenge. I usually use something called Audio Hijack when I record interviews, but I'm still just recording the VoIP um, side of the recording. Uh, which means it's compressed. Um, it doesn't matter so much with this kind of format, but with some newer format shows I'm working on, I'd like better quality. And um, we are currently experimenting with Zencaster and options like that. And he mentions one in here that I hadn't heard of called Squadcast, which I looked into. I mean, a lot of these tend to be quite expensive is the main problem, especially if you're starting a show. They tend to go from... Well, Zencaster has the same thing. They have their hobbyist plan... But it gives you compressed audio, which uh, might as well use Audio Hijack. And then the plan up is like $20 a month and not much in between. And that's kind of been my main experience with a lot of these tools. He also mentions a couple of audio editors I've never heard of, including the intriguingly titled Hindenburg Journalist Pro. Um, I may give that a go at some point. I'm relatively happy with my workflow, which is, I say, Audio Hijack and then Adobe Audition. I have a creative cloud subscription. Um yeah, <laughs> I've had it for some time. It doesn't seem worth changing right now. But if you are getting new into this and you don't have any of these pre-existing uh, workflows or tool chains, then it'd be worth having a look at this post to, to get a slightly different and mostly cross-platform, which is good perspective on options for leveling up your game with your podcast ideas. Next, uh, a regular on the Weekly Squeak from Stephen J. Vaughan, an article on ZDNet about uh, the open source um, firmware versions for a CPAP machine to turn it into a ventilator. This caught my interest for several reasons. Firstly, because uh, there has been this whole um, issue with a shortage of ventilators in certain countries and not here in Germany. In fact, we have an abundance and are bringing in other people, which is interesting uh, for people who suffer particularly bad from COVID-19. But my wife actually has a CPAP machine, uh, which are more common, albeit relatively expensive. Um, so I was interested when I first heard about this and when I saw this article with a bit more detail, it turns out she has the one that actually can be hacked. Um, 
I don't know what the legality of all this. Uh, hers is on, in theory on lease from the health insurer and actually phones home every now and then. Yes, even in Germany. She's quite surprised me when I heard that. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if I heard it in the States or something like that. But in Germany where they're very privacy focused, the fact that she had a machine that phoned home took me by surprise. Uh, in fact, when we were in Japan last year, she started getting messages from them because it wasn't connecting to the mobile network, obviously. Um, I think it only works Europe-wide. Anyway, so I'm sure if she decided to hack the firmware to turn it into a ventilator for someone's use, they would probably, I, I don't know, it's interesting. Would they be happy with that? I mean, <laughs> it's a very interesting point to make. I don't know if anyone has an answer to that. Maybe I should put a, a call out on social media to get some uh, German experts to weigh in on whether that would actually be an okay thing to do or not here. Interesting. But anyway, there's a bit more detail on this post about what that entails and how effective the machine is. I don't know how many of these machines there are in the wild. I'm not sure if the article mentions it. Let's have a quick look. No, but I think they're reasonably common with people who have uh, sleep apnea and things like that. So, And I guess cheaper than, uh, than a proper quote-unquote ventilator. So... Could be an interesting idea if, if there's really a problem in the future. But yeah, the legal side is something that could be interesting. And we've already seen cases of well-meaning researchers uh, open sourcing mask parts and things like that and getting sued, which is kind of bad. And I remember here when that came out at the time on a show I was listening to uh, the host talking about how people will probably remember the companies that acted as good citizens in this whole phase and those who didn't, and hopefully remember that with their loyalty moving forward in the future. A post here on The Guardian. I don't think there's an author because it's just photos. Quite fascinating. I love sort of pictures like this. I think I've, uh, well, I should tell you what it is first. It's a photo of planes grounded right now in various airports around the world. Uh, and it just looks so strange and sparse. There's these giant machines all sat together, sitting there doing nothing. Um, I think I have shared before links on um, tank graveyards and things like that. I love these kind of desolate urban, not urban, sorry, <laughs> desolate kind of uh, scenes with these vast machines sitting there filling them. And these, some of these photos look amazing. Um, yeah, and also there's a picture here of a Ryanair planes, a budget carrier here in Europe with all the like stairs as well set next to them. Um, there was a... And then you see like the different liveries of the various planes all kind of sat next to each other like in a weird like sort of dance formation. There's <laughs> something kind of strangely beautiful about all these odd looking photos. Um, the British Airways ones especially because they're on kind of a bank that I think they're on a maybe on a runway actually uh, and it's slightly rounded. No, it can't be a runway then. Uh, and they're sort of undulating almost like they're swimming in a river. It's some quite strangely beautiful photo so if any of that appeals to you go and have a look uh, <laughs> finally in the uh, COVID-19 roundup this is something that caught my eye because I had been wondering I mean this is not the first time that uh, the world has faced a pandemic and actually if you look at the kind of grand scheme of things um, the numbers in this one are relatively low but we have to take into account our modern healthcare and that kind of the scale of acceptable death these days is um, different than it was in the past. It's also interesting, of course, because we have larger populations now in the world as well. I guess that is a sign of progress. Um, and this, especially just 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 before a few months ago, I was reading uh, London Necropolis, something like that, or Necropolis Story of London Dead, or something like that. And there was a few stories in there 
about plague victims and the numbers for the plague victims. And when you consider this is when London was a lot smaller than it is now, they were phenomenal. Um, the sorts of deaths that are happening in some countries total happening each week. And this is when there's a less of a population. And it would be, I know people have a tendency to misuse the word decimated, but I think literally decimated, <laughs> possibly even more, actually. Um, and this is a, a post from The Conversation by Ute Lotzheumann, um, looking at uh, Samuel Pepys's diaries from some of those plague uh, times in London and comparing how similar they are in, in some ways. Uh, there was a practice of social distancing. There were people uh, flogging um, inaccurate and uh, useless um, ways of curing things. There were inappropriate, was inappropriate blaming. There was worry. There was economic downturn. Um, and then actually, if you dive in, you read the numbers again and you realize how large the numbers for plague were. Um, but of course, it was a very different time. Um, we didn't really have hospitals per well we did but they were different um probably not very hygienic um and i think that's been one of the interesting outcomes of this when it's hopefully over will be that you know the the things like the plague caused us to realize certain things about the way we lived and that they should change um especially around hygiene and whilst we're way more hygienic than we were then there are certain things that I think people have realised about how filthy we can be and being more hygienic in certain ways. And those of us a little bit like me who've always been a bit OCD about that sort of thing will be very welcome of that when that uh, that does happen. So, yeah, interesting. We will see what the sort of outcomes of that are in the long run. But have a look. I think Samuel Pepys' diaries are probably in the public domain if you want to read more detail as well. All right, getting out of uh, COVID now. So my next post is another one from ZDNet, from Liam Tung on Google's Flutter uh, updates and announcements. I put this in because I actually was working on some content for Flutter. I've been working on some apps as well for some posts that have not been published yet, hopefully soon. Um, and I have always been wanting to try Flutter and Dart uh, more for cross-platform development, especially as now it is true cross-platform. They have not only mobile targets, they have macOS targets, web targets as well. Um, and it's sort of familiarish language um i found some of it slightly confusing which you can read when this post is published but i got there in the end and this new version adds a lot of uh, things that start to make it look even more compelling and as a lot of people has rumored maybe as a replacement for java uh in the android ecosystem especially and some of other of google's uh, tooling and languages they've had a, a large increase in developers two million a uh, big uptick in enterprise use, probably that uh, cross-platform uh, nature there is what's driving that. And then with this big uptake in developers uh, all around the world, actually, which is quite nice to see, they're starting to change their branching and release mod uh, model to to help with uh, regular releases, not uh, breaking things so much and getting them out and et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of the tooling around Flutter is also very good. I was using the Visual Studio Code uh, extension and it makes it quite usable. There's a few oddities occasionally with things um, also, I found that installing it with Homebrew, a macOS package manager, was not seamless. I don't know why it's not in there properly, but there is kind of an unofficial formula that um, that solves that for you. But yeah, if you haven't looked at the language, now is probably a good time. On the subject of alternatives to Flutter, <laughs> it's not. I'm not working for ZDNet. I wish I were, but um, here's another post from there, from Catalin Campanu. Uh, there was another small 
NPM module that broke a lot of things. Uh, it's another left pad all over again. This one uh, was equally innocuous, which was, is promise to tell uh, developers if something is a promise or not. And promises have become a big uh, pattern in uh, JavaScript recently, so I guess a lot of people use it. And uh, it broke because it didn't conform to certain uh, standards, uh, and then projects that wanted to conform to those standards broke because it had a dependency that didn't conform to those standards. And yeah, a lot of projects suddenly weren't able to release or build, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, with these new dependencies. No actual real crashes, but just compile errors. And then, of course, it was fixed soon after. But still, it's amazing how even in a few hours of problems, the the amount of drama that can be caused <laughs> by just this small package that apparently is very, very minimal in terms of code as well. Good old npm and JavaScript, eh? Next, this is an article from Wired from Nicole Kirby, although this was also widely reported, uh, kind of state of the union, as it were, European Union, on GDPR after two years, um, and how the European Union shows its unique colours again in that um, it's always kind of been up to each state to enforce, and most of the companies in, Euro in the European Union that um, were really the targets of GDPR are mostly based in Ireland, and Ireland isn't particularly interested in <laughs> in, in finding them. Uh, and then the others in other countries have been somewhat minimal. I think there was one against British Airways and one against Marriott, which were somewhat more significant. Um, and then a lot of other small ones that basically most companies would just shrug off of that sort of size. So it's another unfortunate example of how European Union ideas and ideals are up to each country to enforce. And if a country is just not very interested in enforcing them, and I think uh, a lot of this policy was really flagshipped by certain countries, shall we say, uh, who have limited remit in their own jurisdictions to enforce it because of the companies that are based there, then uh, is it very useful? Um, I guess this doesn't look at the other consequences of this sort of um, freedom of data access and things like that that uh, European citizens have also enjoyed that don't necessarily make the high-profile news because... It's just little old us doing it and not someone being fined 500 million or whatever. But um, I suppose that was always going to be the, the, the headline uh, news anyway in each case. So I'm not sure. I think it has been successful in that way, whether it's been successful in the fining companies. Who knows? I mean, just because you fine a company, does that mean success? Maybe it's good because if they're not being fined, then it means maybe they've tied it up their act. So it's very hard to judge just based on that to measure. But we all know lies down lies and statistics so who knows anyway uh, gdpr two years later sort of making a difference and finally in the and finally section this is definitely an and finally uh, item from inverse by uh, ray poletta why do cats slow blink at their owners i found this quite interesting our cat does this quite a lot and stares at us quite a lot and i was never really sure how to interpret it i mean interpreting Cats and their meaning has always been something of a challenge anyway and confounded scientists. And this had some interesting advice that they're usually doing it actually when they're relaxed around you. And if they're staring, they're stressed. Uh, and slow blinking back at them is actually recommended. And if they are staring at you, either slow blink back at them or look away. Uh, <laughs> classic case with cats of, yeah, do what the cat wants. Um, and there's a wonderful little picture here of a cat slow blinking in the article, which you can enjoy. And apparently the uh, slow blink is is a little bit of a, a little bit of a, 
I love you or your kitty kiss. So they do like you when they're doing it. So do it back. I wonder if uh, they, they perceive that through glasses. Hard to tell. But uh, and cats are way smarter than we sometimes think. Um, so, yeah, enjoy to And if you have a, a, a kitty in your house, then uh, give it a nice slow blink from me. That was my articles for the week. And now an interview with Gaurav Dashpanda of Tigergraph. I'm Gaurav Dashpanda. I'm the Vice President of Marketing at Tigergraph. Tigergraph is a graph database and analytics platform. Mm-hmm. So in terms of our technical qualifications, Chris, for your audience, we are built on MPP, Massively Parallel Processing uh, Metrology, which means we are um, inherently parallel in all aspects of our operations. Um, that gives a huge advantage. The second major differentiator as a graph database, because there are a lot of graph databases in the market, is that we are a native graph database, which means we represent objects natively inside inside as ver- ver- vertex uh, for the business object and edge for the relationships. We don't have a graph layer on top of a relational backend. We actually have a native graph database underneath. Um, okay. So native graph and the parallel nature of the underlying platform yeah. because of MPP are the two key uh, factors that then drive performance that is uh, typically 40, 40 to 300 times faster than any of the competing products. Okay. Let's unpack that statement a little bit for people who aren't familiar yes. with what it means. What is a graph database? Absolutely. So graph database, easiest way to think about it is anytime you are representing, let's take an example of what a traditional relational database is, and then I'll contrast that with what a graph database does. In a relational database like Oracle, like DB2, you would have each business object typically represented with the table. So product information is contained in one table. Uh, Customer information is contained in another table order information in another one, payment transactions for banks in a separate one. Uh, Claims for healthcare industry would have several multiple tables, one for prescription claims, one for um, treatment claims, one for doctor visit claims and things like that. So everything, think of uh, literally the uh, landscape as islands of tables. Mm -hmm. And then there are foreign keys that are connecting those up. That's how relational database works essentially a way to um, uh, tables that contain contain information about business objects and then you have multiple rows and then you have multiple columns that uh, represent different features within that or attributes. So that's the typical structure of a relational database now. Coming to the graph database, graph database represented exactly as you would imagine it should be represented, which is products, customers, orders, claims, financial transactions, they are all connected together uh, with business objects represented by Vertex. Uh, for example, let's take our example, right? Chris Chris Ward uh, runs a podcast, Precarious Mammal. Chris Ward is a writer for D-Zone and several other major publications. Uh, he's interviewing right now Gaurav Dishpande, who is the vice president of marketing at Tigergraph. If, if I were to ask you to draw this on a piece of paper, you would draw one circle for Gaurav Dishpande, 
you'll probably draw Tigergraph on top and then draw a line between those to say, you know, he works for Tigergraph as a vice president of marketing. Then he'll draw a relationship between Gaurav and Chris. And that relationship is, you know, currently Chris interviewed Gaurav on this particular day on March, 25th of March. That's the that's exactly how the graph databases represent, which means essentially the entities are pre-connected and therefore when you're trying to do analysis of relationships between Gaurav and Chris or Chris and Tagograph, you can go from Chris to Gaurav, who uh, Chris interviewed on 25th of March, and go from Gaurav to Tigergraph to say there's a two-level of connection, two-level two connection or a two-hop connection between Chris and Gaurav. Uh, Chris and Tigergraph. And there's one level of connection separation between Chris and Gaurav because Chris directly interviewed Gaurav. So this idea of traversing relationships is directly because the entities are pre-connected in a graph database. is simply a matter of walking through that um, particular adjacency. Uh, you don't need require an index for it. It's index-free adjacency. So that's the reason why for your technical audience, they'll appreciate this is that you don't need to do table joins like you do in case of relational databases. Um, because you don't need table joins, you don't, uh, the relationship analysis is very easy and uh, much faster than a relational database. Mm -hmm. And I guess graph databases have come to certainly help represent a lot of modern applications. Um, I do remember not well actually a reasonably long time ago now i suppose doing lots of yeah nested joins and it being very very bad on performance on web applications especially mm -hmm. and i guess graph uh, sort of replaces this concept that was meant for a particular purpose and had kind of passed its purpose and graphs now represent how we really look at lots of data now yeah, it just helps you exa exactly, Chris. I mean, you hit the nail on the head. It's it's all these joins, both joins across tables, you know, forming different kind of star joins, or even the recursive joins within a particular table when you're trying to understand relationships between different objects within that particular table. Both of those recursive joins as well as star joins is something that is very computationally intensive, and all of your audience will appreciate this. If they have, uh, they have tried to do this to do relationship analysis uh, between relational databases, it takes a lot of time. It's very time consuming. And as the pace of the economy increases, just, let's take the current example, what's happening right now in the market, right? In the financial markets, in the economy, we have COVID-19 uh, impact to the financial. If you just take the financial impact of COVID-19, a uh, lot, lot of local businesses are shut down. Uh, a lot of businesses have only 10 days of cash on hand, smaller businesses like bars, restaurants, um, even boutique hotels. So there is a huge cash flow impact for these businesses. Understanding things like that, even from a local government perspective or a county government perspective or a bank's perspective that that has loans from the that is holding loans uh, uh, for for different aspects within that those small businesses doing the impact analysis by itself understanding the relationship of what's happening in terms of the virus and how it's affecting each of those businesses every time you require you're required to do these massive joints to understand these relationships and that takes a very long time. And in this day and age, you really don't have the luxury of time 
um, or the computing resources to do the deep analysis with the joints. So this is where every time you're trying to do relationship analysis, mm. graph databases are a natural choice. And in case of Tiger Graph, the reason why we built Tiger Graph, this is back, I'm going back to 2012 now. Mm -hmm. uh, the reason why Dr. Yushu, the CEO and founder, built Tiger Graph is because he was working in uh, Twitter uh, before that and Teradata before that. And he realized that he could not find a graph database that will actually scale for the large amount of data that Twitter wanted to put. So Twitter wanted to build a social graph of the world by understanding relationships of everybody with everybody else. Even back in 2012, you know, that's talking about hundreds of millions of users, to be able to load up their relationships and do relationship analysis across hundreds of millions of users was a really, really difficult endeavor back in 2012. Mm. So he actually set out to create a graph database that will actually scale. And he being from an MPP, massively parallel processing background, that was his PhD work with University of California at San Diego. That was his work at IBM Watson Labs, which was one of his first jobs out of, out of UC uh, San Diego. He, he went back to his roots and say, can I build a native graph database that is uh, that has parallel processing built into every aspect of it. And that's that's what started Tiger Graph. A little bit of a background about yeah. history <laughs> for your viewers, for your uh, for your listeners of last nine years. Let, let's have a, a bit of a dig into some of the features of Tiger Graph. So as far as I can mm -hmm. tell, you have your own query language, GSQL. Um, although yes, actually, no, yeah. you say it's SQL-like. I mean, you say it's SQL-like, but... Are the um, are they comparable, uh, or is do graph databases require a different sort of query language as well? Yeah, so uh, there are currently uh, to answer your question, the 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 language is uh, semantics wise is very similar. Uh, at least G SQL is uh, graph SQL is because we have implemented the familiar clauses like from where uh, select what you would expect from a relational background. The, the differences mainly are the graph-specific constructs, such as, let's take an example. If I'm walking from Chris to Gaurav, Gaurav to Tiger Graph, right? That particular walk is simply a, um, a, a, an arrow statement. Imagine there's an arrow. I'm, I'm writing down Chris uh, to Gaurav and Gaurav to Tiger Graph. It's simply uh, point, pointing an arrow between us and walking that straight, uh, that, that path between us and drop back to Tiger Graph. That's something that construct obviously doesn't exist in the relational world because there's no equivalent of it in the semantics for the relational world. So there we have added um, our own semantics um, that makes sense. And other than that, select from where all the stuff that you would expect as a SQL programmer is there in GSQL. Now, what we are doing is we are working with other graph database uh, vendors um, and also people like Oracle on the SQL side. Mm -hmm. So we are, we are teamed up with Oracle. We're working with Neo4j, which is an open source graph database, kind of the granddaddy mm -hmm. of graph databases. Um, we are working with them uh, and other players in the industry to define a standardized language for the graph. And that is a part of an ISO uh, effort that's going on. Okay. It's called GQL or yeah. graph query language. So by 2021, that standard will be 
first first uh, set of standards should be published, and our objective is to have support that. Um, think of G SQL as a superset of um, SQL, mm-hmm. as well as in terms of the construct because it has semantics. That is, you know, basically every everything that has a SQL equivalent, we have taken that and taken as is into G SQL. Mm-hmm. Everything that doesn't have it equivalent in graph we have created our own um, uh, semantics for that and we would be supporting that as well as the gql the standard graph query language um, as it comes out so the minute it comes out it's a great thing because people have been building applications on top of tiger graph large massive applications will continue to backward support our gsql syntax and as we take the best parts of the GSQL syntax into the GQL, we'll also support the final agreed upon GQL that's standard for the industry. So that will just take away all of this requirement to learn multiple query languages mm-hmm. for the developers. A typical ramp up time for GSQL is only about four to six hours for somebody who is a SQL familiar person. So we don't have more than half a day of ramp up time yeah. for GSQL, like I mentioned, because the semantics is identical. And from memory, I, I do remember. I think SQL is an ISO standard, so it's interesting to see it's taken the best part of ten years for the major vendors to make that happen. <laughs> and I don't mean that from your perspective; <laughs> but, I mean that from the ISO body no, no. perspective. It takes a long time. <laughs> oh, absolutely, absolutely. No, this is this is wonderful, uh, Chris, because for especially for technical. Uh, people like you and me, we we have been waiting. This is this is the second query language for databases after nearly thirty years, right? What was it? Thirty years back that we had. <laughs> and we can wait. For, so for I'm definitely ready for it in my lifetime, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> One of the other features that that jumps out of me as being quite interesting um, is this feature you have multigraph. Um, mm-hmm. I kind of interpret as the ability for. Um, for well, why didn't you explain it? <laughs> You're probably better explaining it. Than yeah, me. of course, <laughs> of course, of course. No, no, I, 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 and, I, and and the way you're thinking about it intuitively, exactly how it is, right? Let let me take an example and yeah. let me clarify. Let's take, um, let's say there are, uh, let's take an example of a large bank, right? Large bank has different roles within it, different divisions and departments within it. Uh, certain information, like a consumer's credit rating, for example, or uh, information related to that uh, is accessible for a part of the organization, right? Um, that needs to know about that. Certain information such as your bank account, um, uh, bank account balance, uh, whether you are overdrawn, uh, whether you are, uh, whether you have um, sufficient balance to clear a particular type of check, whether you have been paying your payments uh, um, on time, uh, at a high level, that information is generally available to most of the bank employees. Uh, also, there are different divisions. There is the retail banking division, there is the mortgage division, there is the credit card division. And depending on the role of the employee, the employee needs to have access to the right set of segment of information that they are supposed to look at and other information that's sensitive information or that's not relevant to their job, they shouldn't be able to see. The whole idea about multigraph is the ability to segment a um, a domain into multiple domains, assign the role-based access for those, and then say, John can look at everything for retail banking 
um, but he's not going to look at mortgages or credit cards because that's not part of his role. So this ability to do individual graphs for each of the business units, for example, or each of the product lines, and the ability for people to have access to it or not, depending on their role, is what multigraphs are um, used for. Now, of course, as you can imagine, every large organization has fairly complex requirements around this. And so most of our customers um, uh, are Fortune 500 customers. And then we have really, really innovative startups that are building very cool solutions on top of Tagigraph. So we have both ends of the spectrum. So for the first category of the Fortune 500 large companies, uh, for example, top four out of the five top global banks use Tagigraph for fraud detection. Right and credit risk assessment. So these 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 large banks, for example, have very stringent requirements about who can see what information, because for the most part, our financial information is very very important and very very has to be very very secure as you as you open up access. So even for analysis, I don't want to have somebody let have access to sensitive information when their job role does not require access to that. So that's where bringing information together is fantastic in a single graph database. But if you're not able to segment it based on the roles, mm. it's not useful or usable for a large organization. So that's the reason why we added multigraphs around, yeah. around October of 2017, if memory serves me right. And that, that is the driver of that particular, uh, particular requirement. And I guess tying reasonably nicely into that um, for the the non-technical staff members who want to be able to define these rules, create relationships, and mm-hmm. and then share information and access information they need access to. As far as I can tell, you have uh, this Graph Studio uh, product or feature as well. That we do, we that do, yeah. And in fact, the, and, yeah, absolutely, yeah. In fact, this three announcement that we sent out. Um, last week on 16th is got to do with that because mm-hmm. Graph Studio is something that came about as a requirement to say, I have lots of visualization tools at the Fortune 500 company. I have um, relational tables, visualization tools like like uh, like um, Cognos, like Tableau, a host of them, right? Hyperion, uh, Oracle. But I really don't have anything that allows me to visualize graph data in an interconnected format. So Graph Studio was is our um, user interface that can be used for defining schema in a graph database, modifying schema. Uh, it's also used to write queries. So it's also an SDK, full-blown SDK. Um, you can write queries there. You can run queries. You can look at results. So as a part of this Graph Studio, um, the 3.0 announcement that we made uh, last week, Chris, is that Taking that graph studio that's always been used by data scientists in Fortune 500 companies, uh, some of the biggest organizations are already using it, but we wanted to take it to the business users, not just to the developers and the architects and the data scientists. Can I move it back all the way to business users to be able to use it? And as we started looking at it, two requirements popped out. So one requirement was, if I'm a business user, if I'm a data scientist who is a, who is a starting out starting out in my career, I'm not... I, I'm not somebody who's going to write ETL jobs, extract, transform, and load jobs to extract information out of a relational database and then be able to load it and then manually create the schema. It can be done very easily in Graph Studio, but that's a lot of work. Can I remove that first dependency? So can I literally get the schema out of a relational database, create the graph schema, 
and also get the data out of the relational database, load it up into a graph without writing a single piece of code. So the first feature that we added in Graph Studio, Chris, is no code migration from relational database. Mm -hmm. Literally, there is a screenshot that we are staring at here, which has a button called Migrate from RDBMS. You click on that button. It prompts you with two options right now in 3.0, Postgres and MySQL. We'll be adding more as we go through future releases. You select the store that you have in the back end. You enter the user ID information, password, then you select the tables that you want to migrate and the attributes that you want to select from those tables. And then you can choose to load all of the tables. You can choose to load only a sample of the data. And you can do that stuff entirely through UI. So that was the first thing that we did is let's take away that problem of trying to, having to go to IT, having to go to a technical person and saying, write me this particular extract from a relational database. Let's try to provide that capability right inside Graph Studio. The second capability that we added after that, Chris, is to say once the data is inside the Graph Studio, I don't want to write G-SQL, even if it's easy to learn, even if you know it's SQL familiar and very uh, leverages all of that semantics. Why should I have to write that to do graph analysis? Can I just point and click and select things um, just like I do on my iPhone? And can I make it as simple as that? So the second feature that we added, which is no-code graph analytics with Visual Query Builder. It's based on the idea of the visual data modeling and analysis to say, if I can click on something, if I can enter a selection criteria, if I can enter a filter criteria, I should be able to do complex analysis without learning a single line of code. So kind of taking that idea of no-code and applying it both to getting data from relational schema from relational and then once it's inside the graph, actually applying complex analysis to the graph data without writing a single piece of code. Mm -hmm. That particular second feature is called Visual Query Builder. Mm -hmm. So this is something that we built. We've, we've been working on this for nearly a year, north of a year. Uh, but we decided to finally re release it because it's ready now for prime time. And I guess then from that, you you can export those as queries if you wanted to for scripting and automation and things like that absolutely yeah. you can build restful endpoints yeah. um, oh, cool. on that and then you could use it as an app um, ah, and okay. as, I, as i mentioned the underlying platform yeah. is highly scalable yeah. Chris, which means that you can take you can hit it with a thousands of queries per second if you wanted to okay. and it stays up that's an interesting feature. Yeah. So what other um, features were part of the latest release that um, in, our, in our short period of time we, you, you can mention that you think are worth mentioning? Yeah. So I remember I mentioned about business users and data scientists where we did no-code migration mm -hmm. from relational database and we did no-code graph analytics with Visual Query Builder. Let's come to the other end of the spectrum, Chris, where we have database administrators in Fortune 500 that are literally now deploying several tens of terabytes of data, right? So uh, as you're deploying 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 terabyte of data, graph data into a distributed cluster, because we are an inherently distributed platform, you need to be able to do that in minutes, not hours, right? So the functionality that we have added is about easier and faster deployment. Uh, think of it as the harnessing that's required, operational deployment harnessing. We have improved it um, in this particular release so that you can do tens of terabytes of data in minutes. Um, 
That's the first thing that we did for the database administrators. The other thing we did for DB administrators is we added user-defined indexing, but we added user-defined indexing with the semantics that's identical to SQL because we wanted to make sure that if you are a database administrator for Oracle or DB2, you can literally use the same exact semantics to create the user-defined index or secondary index for Tigergraph. So those two features are really to improve database administrators, administrators' productivity for deployment and for indexing. Okay. So not wanting to to uh, to push you, now you've just had a new release, but what's on the roadmap for the next release? <laughs> <laughs> If I if I told you, um, I would be in big trouble. <laughs> but you know what? I'll promise you this, Chris. The minute I have a new release coming up, I'll come to you and I will brief you first. How is that? Is that I'll, I'll give your readers, viewers, listeners a sneak peek at it. Uh, <laughs> okay, <laughs> I offer that up. Uh, no, just to uh, just to clarify, I just because I found it uh, on the web page as well for. Uh, single developers who just are interested in experimenting to see how this might be useful and then maybe taking it back to their companies. You do have what I see as a developer edition uh, in Docker. We do, yeah. So you can come to tigergraph.com. You have multiple options. You Mm -hmm. can click on start free button there. You can start with Tigergraph Cloud. Mm -hmm. There's no credit card required. Mm -hmm. So you get the free tier for lifetime Mm -hmm. as the developer. You can start building your application, no credit card required. You have um, multiple starter kits there for common use cases like fraud detection, knowledge graph, recommendation engine, machine learning related feature generation toolkit. Because one thing I did not mention today, Chris, for your viewers is that we do native machine learning inside the platform and you'll see a lot of toolkits, starter kits that are related to that. Again, those are free to use. Um, you also have developer edition there on the site, which you can download for free. And again, it's uh, it's uh, lifetime free for non-commercial usage. Uh, we also have a webinar series called Graph Gurus. You'll find it on the site under under resources, and you can sign up for a webinar. I, I, I'll just ask your listeners to just take a spin, take Tigergraph Cloud for a spin. Mm-hmm and see how easy it is to use. Business users have been playing around with starter kits. About over 1,000 developers have already been building applications on it um, for fraud detection, recommendation engine, knowledge graphs, uh, machine learning feature generation, um, where you generate training data based on graph analysis Mm -hmm. to make your ML better, machine learning better. There's a host of starter kits there. So, you know, start playing around with the starter kits. There's a free... uh, chat sessions on the site, ask us questions, mm-hmm. developer community that's very active that can help you. And we are always there to help you regardless of whether you're a paying customer or you're a developer who is just starting out in the graph world. Our our notion is to bring graph database and analytics to every single developer and every single business user and data scientist in the world. That was my interview with Gaurav from TigerGraph. Hope you enjoyed that. What's been happening, again, I'm finding it very difficult to keep up to date with what is actually happening. Many of the projects I mentioned last week are still in progress. We're actually going to be recording the first proper episode of the Board Game Jerk podcast tomorrow. Um, I should say what day I mean by that. Uh, Thursday. Um, Thursday the 28th. No, 29th. 
Oh, whatever. <laughs> of April. Um, storytelling podcast, we're still editing. It's coming together slowly. We would spend a lot of time working on tooling, really. I had a very productive weekend working on the chip shop game, the relaunch of the chip shop game. We actually should have some prototypes of that fairly soon. Uh, also working on some roleplay game supplements. Uh, and I started my first uh, solo gamer live stream. It was a little bit of a disaster, though. So I'm not going to tell you to go and look at it. But I am going to tell you that I'm going to do another one probably over the weekend, this weekend. So the first weekend of May, sometime in European time. So keep an eye on my YouTube channel or Twitch to see that. Uh, and hopefully the mistakes I made in the first one I won't make again. But that's that's live streams for you. <laughs> You've got to learn, I suppose. Um, I'm going to start my streams of uh, developer experience teardowns very soon as well, possibly this afternoon, possibly tomorrow. Uh, kind of fitting it in is, is the bigger challenge. And uh, as always, I'm still offering office hours if you want help with your documentation projects. So uh, I have a couple lined up for the next week, but there will be some more opening sort of second week of May. So, um, yeah, tweet at me or look at my pinned tweet if you uh, want more details of that. So keep an eye on kristenschiller.com. If you've enjoyed the show, please rate, review and share it. And until next time, if you have been, thank you very, very much for listening and stay safe. Thank <laughs> you.